Good morning, and I'm happy to be here. It's uh, it's interesting uh, being on more or less on sabbatical, um, and you know a lot of inner work with writing at the current time, and uh, it's kind of a highlight to uh, come here in a way that maybe it is for you too, hopefully. Uh, but it's a little different than it has been in the future. It's more like, oh, yes, Wednesday I'm going to Spirit Rock, but now, oh yeah, Wednesday I'm going to Spirit Rock. <laughs> so, I want to continue with the uh, theme of transforming the judgmental mind. This is the seventh uh, talk in the series, which I guess indicates that it takes more than six weeks to totally transform it. <laughs> so, um, and uh, today I want to bring the exploration of how to work with and transform the judgmental mind into looking at the judgments that we have related to social conditioning. And I've talked uh, in the last weeks and mentioned sort of the spectrum of different expressions of the judgmental mind, we've mostly have focused with the ones that are a little more personal or almost like psychologically based, you know, ones that look like it's about me in relation to myself, I don't like this part of myself, or I, you know, when something difficult happens, sometimes I feel inadequate, or, or the judgments we have of others, of partners, of people at work, and so forth. And there's also, I think as we have sometimes uh, uh, pointed out, or sometimes I've pointed out, there's also a whole large grouping of expressions of the judgmental mind that are related to social conditioning. <clears throat> social conditioning particularly around uh, a number of social hierarchies in our society, and we can find something similar in virtually every society. I think I would just say every society. And in our society, there are hierarchies around race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, uh, educational level, religion, age, what else? <laughs> what? Economics. Econ yeah, economic uh, class, um, uh, ability, physical ability, uh, you get the idea, right? We probably, you know, I've probably, we probably have named eight or ten, we probably could name another ten. And there are all sorts of judgments around these areas some of them are more obvious and blatant, and some of them are much more subtle and even uh, unconscious and hidden. We, we looked at one of those just in, you know, right as I was um, first using the mic uh, at the beginning of the sitting, when I said that the mic seems like it's uh, very much uh, bass. It sounds very bass, you know, and, and people were saying, well, we liked that. And then I remembered I had read a study of how uh, uh, bass voices are preferred to higher voices by the bulk of the population, by the majority of the population. And the researchers, when they did the study, they definitely connected with gender issues. And they found that it actually made a difference in certain elections. 
And this is beneath the surf surface of consciousness. We can say, well, I just kind of like being. And this was true for men and women. You know, not just, um, not just men saying, let's have the bass voice, right? But this is a kind of a, uh, what uh, psychologists call implicit bias that's beneath the threshold of consciousness, but linked up with these um, hierarchies, right? And so, like I said, it, it actually, some researchers say it actually may have influenced some elections. And this is on an unconscious level, right? Interesting, isn't it? So there are uh, these various, various kinds of expressions of the judgmental mind, some more obvious, some um, more hidden, right? And the, I think the uh, uh, connection of those kind of judgments with suffering, I think is quite clear. You know, that those judgments manifest in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, in interpersonal relations, in, at work, and in the larger society. And I partly wanted to also use this lens of working with the judgmental mind as a way to um, give a, a perspective on some of what's happened, particularly in the last week in the larger society, you know, and maybe in the last month, going back to the, uh, the mass shooting in Orlando. It's a very uh, troubled time, and you know, for whatever reason, it's reached public consciousness more uh, recently. You know that we have the um, <clears throat> we have the mass shooting, we have the killings in the last week of African American men in uh, Falcon Heights, Minnesota, near St. Paul, and then in Baton Rouge, and then we have the uh, killings of five police officers by an African American man um, who was wanting essentially revenge for the killings of the African American men, and so forth. At least that was seems to be, seems to have been the motive, um, you know, and this brings to our attention, of course, we know that there's a, a backdrop of uh, considerable uh, gun violence and mass shootings uh, in our country, far more than we find, for example, in uh, any of the European countries or Japan or countries on a similar level of material development. You know, I mean, the level of violence is what, I don't, I don't have the exact statistics, but it's, it's 10 or 20 times greater. I mean, it's not like a little bit greater, it's 10 or 20 times greater. So there clearly are deep issues here, you know, and, and so forth. And we also have part of the backdrop is the current election, um, where, where uh, there was actually an article in the New York Times this morning, maybe some of you saw this, the headline was, for whites sensing decline, Donald Trump unleashes words of resistance, right? And I'll just quote from that article, uh, in countless collisions of color and creed, Donald Trump's name evokes an easily understood message of racial hostility. Right? Another quote from the article, in a country where the wealthiest and most influential citizens are still mostly white, Mr. Trump is voicing the bewilderment and anger of whites who do not feel at all powerful or privileged. But in doing so, he has also opened the door to assertions of white identity and resentment in a way not seen so broadly in American culture in over half a century. According to those who track patterns of racial tension and antagonism in American life. 
So it's quite a context, isn't it? And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, just um, what the feelings are and what our thoughts are. <clears throat> you know, I think the direction I'm going to go is to say that we have um, wonderful resources for working with this whole area, for making a contribution to the larger society in working with this material, that the focus on transforming the judgmental mind is not the only focus, of course, but it's a very good focus to, to look into the deeper issues related to all of this. Uh, it's a very good uh, focus area to look into conditioning that lead to uh, social judgments rela related to the social hierarchies and so forth. So, uh, and so my ultimate message is going to be hopeful. Along the way, it's not so easy always, right? And I just wanted to invite us to reflect maybe inwardly for a little while, for 10, 15, 20 seconds, and see, you know, just see what the impact for yourself has been of the events of the last week, or if you want to go to the last month, and see if you can come up with one word. It could be the name of an emotion. It could be just a, a general sense. Uh, so just take a little bit of time and see if there's a word which expresses your feelings and sense of things. <clears throat> Let me invite uh, people just to say, just say a word that might be a predominant emotion or a sense of things, and I'll repeat them. Pain. Pain. Overwhelm. Overwhelm. Let, 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 let's go a little more slowly. <laughs> let's say, uh, so pain, how many can relate to that? Okay, look around, this is important. Overwhelm. How many can relate to that? Okay, and please. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. How many can relate to that? Okay. Fear. Fear. Again, a little more hands there, yeah. yeah. Sadness. What? Sadness. Sadness. Okay. About the same as fear. Heartbreak. Heartbreak. Okay, yeah. Repulsed. Repulsed. Okay. Anger. What? Anger. Anger. Say, sorry? Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Yeah. Concern. Concern. Yeah. Maybe uh, one or two more? Outrage. Outrage. Heavy. What? Heavy. Heaviness. Yeah, heaviness. Okay. So that was, I think... Uh, probably quite representative of what large numbers of people are feeling, thinking, and so forth. And I think it's very good to name those because these are, these are difficult experiences to be with. And it's also an important time to remember our practice because our practice gives us amazing tools to work with all this. Right? And I'm going to keep coming back to those. 
we remember that the most difficult aspect of spiritual practice is not the practice itself, but it's to remember to do the practice. <laughs> That's, uh, and so, remember to remember. <laughs> Uh, because we have, we have quite wonderful tools for working with difficult states and uh, being skillful with them. Skillful means often feeling them and being able to be with what's difficult. Ways of working with overwhelm, coming back to balance, being careful to have negative thoughts not take us away, proliferate, and... Um, um, take us to a stuck place. All of our practice gives us amazing tools. Wouldn't it be amazing if large numbers of the population had such tools? Isn't that necessary for our time? I think so. And so uh, that's where I say that we have some amazing resources that if shared and taught more broadly could be of great benefit. So I think I'm hopeful in the sense of, the, of what people are calling the mindfulness revolution, which also is, uh, you know, is uh, linked with even, uh, you know, I don't know, 20, 25,000 elementary school kids in the Bay Area have been taught mindfulness. Right? And we need these tools, you know, so again, uh, 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 a main way that we work with the judgmental mind of any kind, and but particularly related to social conditioning, we first have to be mindful of it, and then we have to use mindfulness also to see the ones that are more hidden, right? And mindfulness is actually identified as a main tool by many contemporary researchers. Isn't that amazing? Contemporary psych researchers into the psychology of all this are very aware of mindfulness, and they're pointing to it as a core tool. So. Um, at the, at the same time that we want to be open to go into difficulties, we also want to remember the resources and remember to practice. <clears throat> so what I'd like to do, and I think I'm going to do this both uh, today and next week, is to uh, explore some of this contemporary context through that lens of looking at the judgmental mind. And again, I'm pleased to... Um, be sharing this at this time, partly because I, I feel the importance, but partly also because I'm working on this book on transforming the judgmental mind, as everyone knows who's been to one of these past sessions. And I'm, you know, going to go home this afternoon and write on this very topic I'm talking about, and your ideas will go right in there, and your responses will go right in, and you can, if you have stories, you can be in the book either under your own name or a pseudonym. Uh, so, I want to try to uh, make some sense of what's happening by using that lens of uh, judgments related to social conditioning and to also to give a sense of what is an appropriate response. How do we respond in a personal way, interpersonal way, community way, social way? So, I want to lay that out so it's ambitious, right? And again, I think the lens of the judgmental mind is a good one. So for anyone who hasn't been 
to previous uh, sessions on the judgmental mind, which is at least a, f a few of you. How many of you have not been to a previous session? Okay, so it's, it's, um, it's some. I, I need to define my terms <laughs> and say what I mean, because the word judgment, and, and I'll, do, I'll do this briefly, because some of you have, have heard this a lot. <laughs> so I uh, thank you for your patience, and if you're judgmental about me repeating. <laughs> certain things that you've heard many times, you have the tools to work with those judgments. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, remember to practice. Okay. So, um, in English, the word judgment is used uh, both to mean uh, a statement or uh, an interstate that is seen as judgmental. And, 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 and uh, something that's more neutral. We use the word judgment in a more neutral sense at times in English to talk about an artistic judgment, you know, uh, judgment by the engineers about the physics of a building or whatever. Um, and so, or just to refer to an evaluation or a, uh, an assessment. And uh, with the word judgmental, I'm referring to evaluations, assessments that have a charge and are reactive. In terms of Buddhist uh, teachings, they would come under the rubric of sort of the kind of compulsive aversion, typically pushing away, although I'll also point uh, later to positive judgments where we're grasping. So, you know, we know that in Buddhist practice, what we're particularly looking for are ways that we have kind of automatic reactions to either grasp onto something or to push away something uh, in a reactive way, semi-conscious or unconscious, automatic way. And uh, that, that those kinds of reactions reflect a kind of resistance an unconscious resistance often to the present moment. And I, I like the word reactivity better as a translation of dukkha, usually translated suffering, because it's, it's actually what we're talking about. So a judgmental mind is an expression of that, and it's typically, uh, it's typically unconscious. And uh, I'm going to typically use the word judgment to refer to the judgmental mind but know that I'm not talking about that more neutral observation, evaluation, assessment, discernment. And I'll use typically the word discernment to mean, to refer to uh, that kind of non-judgmental evaluation. And again, the example that I've given a few times is that I, as a teacher, need, it's crucial for me to make all sorts of assessments, evaluations, discernments, when I'm working with people. Really, really crucial. And it's also very crucial that I make those discernments without reactivity. Without the reactivity, particularly which issues in being judgmental about that person. If I'm judgmental about that person, I'm not going to be a very uh, uh, successful teacher. <clears throat> you know, even though probably uh, historically a lot of teachers have been judgmental, right? How many had judgmental teachers at school? <laughs> okay. But, uh, and how effective was that? You know, I saw a thumb go down. Probably, to some extent, it's, it's interesting also that the same, the same shift is occurring these days in sports. A little bit of a, 
diversion here, there's been a whole shift in terms of coaches taking a different strategy and being non, you know, essentially constructive rather than just lashing out at people. It used to be that coaches, I think the, you know, I, I follow sports some, so I, I know names, but you know, I think the prototype in the last generation was Bobby Knight, right? some of you know, who you know, berated players. I think he once threw a chair across the court. You know, anyway, and the new generation is like our local, our local coach, uh, Steve Kerr or Phil Jackson, this is in basketball, who, who have a very different approach. I would say they haven't heard my teachings on non-judgmental approach, but maybe I should say, maybe they have, who knows. <laughs> anyway, um, so you get the distinction? It's a very important one, and uh, that'll be behind all of what I'm talking about. So we want discernment, and actually we can have a, a very important discernment, and it can be still expressed in a judgmental way, as in the example of teaching. I can see something very important. And we can also, for example, have a very clear political discernment that can get linked with reactivity. I think we know that. I've mentioned the example of activists often being highly judgmental, but they're seeing something really important, right? I would say that the judgmental quality is a problem. The reactivity is a problem, and it will tend to um, run up against uh, problems. You know, and I've mentioned how I've sometimes given workshops for activists on this very issue. And the ones who came were enthusiastic. <laughs> and the ones who didn't come maybe were judgmental about the whole approach. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> and we may remember the last few times I've used a model that I've developed for a four, for four stages in how transformation occurs. I think I'm probably going to bring that in a little more next time, but it's relevant to remember that. I'll just mention that the first stage of working with judgments is really to access them, see them, notice them, just explore the territory. And that's what I'm going to suggest for our practice for next week before we come back again in terms of judgments related to social conditioning. Primarily just make a commitment in the next week to explore them, see what's there for yourself, see what's there in others. The second stage was going more deeply to see the hidden roots of the judgmental mind. And here we would talk about both personal judgments and interpersonal judgments, as well as judgments related to social conditioning. The third stage is where we actually come to a transformation of the judgmental mind, at least in a protected or training environment. So we have glimpses of the transformation and what that looks like. And then the fourth stage is where we stabilize and integrate that transformation in our daily lives. It's a fairly commonsensical model of how transformation occurs. First, you have to go into the territory, really get familiar with it, then go to the depth, second stage, third, see how to actually shift away from the conditioned pattern, and fourth, stabilize it, make it real in your daily life. Fairly commonsensical, I think. So I'll be referring to that at times. Okay, uh, and I'll be also bringing you know, forth some of the key elements of our, of our, I would say, our Buddhist practice, our mindfulness practice, and others. And I think we have tremendous resources 
for working with these issues. I think we need other resources and all as well. And I think the combination of the more inner resources that we have been cultivating, many of us for a long time, along with some other resources that we get from other approaches, really to me offers what we collectively need in this situation. More or less a combination of inner resources and more outer resources on how to understand uh, social conditioning and how to uh, work through it. So I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. And just maybe to mention, and I'll come back to these tools, uh, some of our core uh, ways of practicing, again, we have to keep remembering these, we, f we forget easily, you know, is, you know, first of all, our deep intention. With our practice, we, we work often with a deep intention to touch freedom in ourselves and to help others be free. This goes a long way in all this. It means we're in this for the long haul. You know, we're not just, you know, that intention is there when there are good times, when there are hard times. And so touching back to deeper intention is really important for this area because we can get discouraged and overwhelmed. So to come back to intention, to cultivate clear seeing, our wisdom aspect, to see causes and conditions for how things happened. You know, in the context of social conditioning, it's partly to be interested and better informed about history and how things work, you know. Um, not always part of our education, right? So we have to look at that. Our heart practices are amazing. We are, our metta practices, our compassion practices, our practices of empathy are incredible for this whole area, right? There, you know, in our metta practice, we make the intention to develop a kind heart towards every being, actually not just human beings, right? And that's, again, something that we're cultivating. That's the horizon. <clears throat> uh, some of us may be uh, sometimes overwhelmed by the social issues. Well, you can also be overwhelmed by the magnitude of the spiritual intentions. It's a lot, right? We want to re be free. This is not, no small thing, right? I'll come back to that point. Um, we also have a commitment to non-harming. That's part of our practice. And, you know, you can find in the old text from 25, 2600 years ago that this is not just about one's personal interactions. It's not just about not harming in one's own life, not harming others. But you can find texts where there's also a social dimension to this, where it's about not letting others be harmed. You know. And you can see this in some of the societies which have had uh, Buddhist rulers in Asia, you know, where they, you know, the, the, the great king uh, Ashoka, uh, if, if I remember clearly, eliminated the death penalty and actually prohibited, in many ways, the killings of animals. This was in India 2,300 years ago. You know, we haven't, our society hasn't quite caught up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and Thich Nhat Hanh expresses this basic precept of not killing as do not kill, do not let others kill. Some people think that the ethical guidelines that we take are actually a major vehicle for, for guiding us in terms of the social dimension. 
That's a tall order. Do not kill, do not let others kill. What does that mean? You know? And I think it's not necessarily that we have answers, but we take that as a, a challenge, right? What does that mean for me? What do I, how do I want to, want to act? <clears throat> and we have a commitment, maybe lastly, to practice know whatever comes up. You know, and we remember that practice is not just about feeling good. It's not just about when things are flowing. You know, and I remember this cartoon, which I sometimes give, of a young woman meditating, saying to herself, today I will live in the present moment, unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. <laughs> well, that's okay for first-level practice, but second-level practice, you hang out a little bit more with the unpleasant before you eat the cookie. And um, I also think of this uh, Tibetan, uh, Tibetan phrase. I wasn't, let me see if I can remember it. It's, it's, uh, it goes like this. Um, when the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. <laughs> but it is, it is when troubles arise that the true depth of my practice is revealed. <laughs> right? So we want to remember that we have a commitment to being with things even when they're challenging. Right? And then that can give us, the, all of this can give us energy for, uh, you know, as Pema Chodron says, she has a phrase, she says, you know, this counter, this movement, counter our conditioning to lean in when it's difficult. <clears throat> so let's look at uh, the judgmental mind in the area of social conditioning. And I'd like to ask for a few examples and see if you can express this in just in one sentence. And maybe... Um, I don't know, I, I don't, maybe not the worst of them, <laughs> but just maybe some that are in the moderate range. I, I'm not so eager to have really, really negative comments repeated, but we know what those are, right? You know, the, the, the extreme comments related to race or gender or sexual orientation. I think we know that, but what are some that are more maybe in the moderate range that are, as it were, um, okay to be said in polite company. Okay. And think of some that, that express a judgmental mind in related social conditioning. Um, and say it in one sentence, please. People who I disagree with politically are bad people. Yeah. And let, let's use the mic uh, for the others. People who I disagree with politically are bad people. So we, could, we might even say, these people are bad people. Anyone who follows this one is a bad person. Yeah. Others. You can say one you've heard or that others and uh, please. Yeah. I think it's improving, but there's still that um, the male is better at math and science than the female. Yeah. Yeah, men are better at math and science, or um, just just that kind of view, right? You know, or it could manifest in, um, <clears throat> you know, hearing, I don't know, someone on the news who's a, uh, 
scientist who's, who's a woman, and people making comments about that. Oh, hmm, yeah, something like that, okay. And maybe, um, let's just say them. I think my word of caution <laughs> kind of prevented people from giving examples. I, I thought of one. Yeah, okay. Uh, especially in Marin, it's yeah. good to be skinny and rich. What? Skinny and rich, if you're yeah, a woman. Yeah, it's good to be skinny and rich. Again, so the, the, the judgmental mind can be positive. I'll come back to that. Please. He's a good basketball player for a white guy. Yeah. He's a good basketball player for a white guy, yeah. Everyone who lives in Marin is entitled. Everyone who lives in Marin Everyone is who entitled. lives in Marin is entitled, yeah. If you don't get good grades in school, you're not smart. If you don't get good If you don't get good grades. If you don't in get school, good grades in school, you're not smart, you know. Yeah. Maybe one or two more. And I think particularly around some of the social hierarchies, gender, race, class, sexual orientation. Uh, black men are dangerous and scary. Yeah, black men are dangerous and scary. Yeah, okay. Um, one, one more, or two more, okay. Women make emotional judgments and are therefore less trusted as leaders. Yeah, women make emotional judgments and are less trusted as leaders. Or we say emotional, yeah, yeah, evaluations, whatever, yeah. Women who dress a certain way are asking for it. Yeah, women who dress this way are asking for it. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> so we have, a, we have a sense, we have a sense of the field, and again, I think we could probably call to mind ones that are quite extreme, you know, which, uh, and we can see that a lot of them are, are more subtle. Um, and I, I was thinking of uh, a few examples, you know, one of them would be, because um, we, we get these messages continually, don't we? You know, I was thinking of uh, an example of going to a party and you meet people at the party and um, people ask, uh, what do you do? Right? And it's almost like when you say what you do, the whole weight of all the uh, condition, social conditioning is waiting right there to evaluate you, right? <laughs> you know, and you say, um, I'm, a, I'm an unemployed artist, <laughs> right? And again, it's going to totally depend on the kind of party and the crowd. And some, you know, one, one where there are a bunch of unemployed artists, they would say, oh, great, you're keeping the faith, right? You know, really good, hang in there, you know? And then, um, but if you're in a different crowd, maybe it's a family gathering and you say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist and your uncle or whatever says, uh, how are you doing economically? Eh. And, and, said, uh, and says, when are you going to grow up, right? You know, or some other comments. And, and, you know, and one can, you know, just in that ordinary dialogue, you can feel the weight of all the messages of the society, right? can think of it, and it's very common. And, you know, it might be, uh, you know, uh, around occupation, you know, it could be, it could be, um, uh, you know, again, I'm a, a woman physicist, I go to a party, and I might get a lot of stuff coming at me, 
about um, basically expressing some judgment that you're weird or you're not supposed to do that or whatever. Or I might if I'm an Asian American, you know, as is commonly known, I'm at the party, uh, I, I would have people saying, where are you from? even though I'm a second generation, third generation, born in the US, right? And so these are all expressing certain kinds of judgments. Um, and of course, the, um, uh, a lot of them, you know, we've, in this period of time, we often don't say a lot of them, or people are trained to know not to say some of them, even if they're still there. Now, there's also an interesting level uh, in many ways, more interesting level of what is more at the level of what I was calling earlier implicit bias. In other words, a little bit more beneath the surface. Uh, and these uh, can be related very much to what I was talking about in previous weeks as uh, core beliefs, that we have certain kinds of core beliefs which are deeply conditioned in fact, the, the definition of implicit bias it's tip, is something that is typically unconscious, but it's a kind of mental association that's repeated, had been repeated so many times that it goes beneath the threshold of consciousness. And you can find a lot of this implicit bias makes a lot of sense of what happens with police and African Americans, makes a lot of sense of a lot of the social conditioning, and the kind of approach I want to bring to all this is what I, what I sometimes would call uh, a no shame and no blame approach. And I think that our Buddhist practice supports that. One of the most difficult, um, this is a very difficult area, a lot of the approaches really bring about a sense of shame and blame for people. You're at fault, you're bad, you're this, you're white, you're a man, you know, and so, or whatever it might be. And um, I think when we actually look carefully, having the approach that um, tries as much as possible to approach the area in a way that doesn't bring about shame and blame is really called for. And I want to kind of bring out that point in a few, few different ways. I think some of the understanding of implicit bias and the way the brain works can help there. So we can see that a lot of what's happening is actually even goes against people's conscious wishes and intentions. You know, and that the and this is where mindfulness can come in because a lot of what's beneath the surface we can access with mindfulness, and you're not going to get rid of these the implicit bias without a fairly deep kind of untraining. So, I give some examples of some of these uh, judgments beneath the surface. One of the most powerful examples of this came from an example which I've given here before which was a so-called uh, doll test that was given to African-American girls starting in the late 1930s up through the 50s. Some people have replicated this in the present time. And this was the experiment that was done by Mamie and Kenneth Clark, who were working with uh, African-American girls, I think age six to nine, in Harlem at, during that period. And they, were, they were psychologists. And they conducted this study of giving African-American girls white, uh, white dolls and block dolls. And they asked them a series of questions. They asked them, um, which doll is the good doll? 
And their answer pretty uniformly was that the white doll is the good doll, and the black doll is the bad doll. So, so something, some message has been deeply internalized from society. And this was done in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Some recent experiments very recently show it hasn't changed that much. And that's supported by other, by other studies. And then they were also asked, which doll is like you? A good number of them could not answer that question. We would say the level of cognitive dissonance was too great. And some did and said, the black doll is like me. These were young kids. And they had internalized, we might say, very deep core belief that I am not good. Right? Coming from the social conditioning, you know, at a very, very young age. And uh, that's there, you know. And we have to, you know, we can presume that that's there in every person who's part of the group that's at the lower end of the hierarchy. And part of, part of what helps to move beyond shame and blame is to see that in those multiple groups that I named, in those multiple hierarchies, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, religion, age, sexual orientation, economic class, you know, ability, that all of us either have been or will be or are in a member of one of those outgroups or groups that's at the bottom. You know, as children, you know, there's a certain devaluation of children which has still not been brought into being a civil rights issue. I think it maybe it will be in the next 50 years. You know, the way that children and teenagers are treated, right? You know, for a long, even now, people can go into the army at age 18, but certain rights they don't have till age 21, right? So there's certain kinds of uh, systematic discrimination. And there are similar patterns for older people. <clears throat> and uh, having some sense of that, and of course, in terms of gender or religion. So I think all of us, there are places where we either, where we have been, are, and or will be, uh, the recipient of unfair treatment based on membership in a group. Of course, it's thicker for certain people, you know, the proverbial African-American lesbian, right, is getting it on a lot of, lot of levels, or the older, <laughs> the elder, uh, and so forth. So, um, so I think that, that's, you know, I think that in the um, trainings around these issues that I've been to that are the most skillful, that's been brought out right at the beginning so people can say, okay, there are these multiple levels of oppression. Again, it's not equal, but there's oppression that all of us are uh, touched with, and now we want to focus on this area. Not, but that helps us not to see, okay, I'm bad you know, because of this. Or Does that make some sense? I find that really important. And it also can give empathy, because we can see where I've been treated unfairly in a systematic way. And we may have to even explore that to really uh, access that. So we have that example of the African-American uh, girls. We have um, <clears throat> many, many, many different areas. Let me, let me mention one of the, the roots of this, 
uh, that I think people have been clearer about. And maybe I'll, I'll finish with this <clears throat> and then go into more areas next time um, because of the time, because I want to have some room for discussion. Um, in every society, there are in-groups and out-groups. There are social hierarchies. And there are examples of the judgmental mind related to those social hierarchies. And we have that in, in every society, there are in-groups who are socially dominant and out-groups who are socially marginalized or oppressed and or oppressed. And I think that's true in every, <clears throat> every society. You know, there's some version of that. Uh, in the, <clears throat> you know, in Europe, I think the primary mode of oppression was around class. In the U.S., it's arguably around race, the primary one. You know, class is very important, gender is very important, but some, you know, societies differ according to which modes of social dominance are, are more central. Now, the key in this is that it's very natural for human beings to have in-groups and out-groups. And in a sense, it's innocent. You know, people seem to want to be with people who they think are like them. Some of this is around, uh, and it's around all sorts of different areas. You know, it could be around, I like to be with people who go to Spirit Rock. That's my in-group, <laughs> you know. Or I like to be around stamp collectors. How many of you fit that category? <laughs> well, I used to collect, when I was a kid, I collected stamps, and I loved being around stamp collectors, you know. So it could be that, or it could be, um, it could be uh, around sports fans. Some of this is, on the surface, seems innocent. And there also are in-groups and out-groups around ethnicity, around religion, around even, even around, around gender, that we form certain in-groups and out-groups. And this in itself is natural and innocent. You'll see the main way that this innocence gets turned into a problem is when those in-groups and out-groups get attached to power. Then you got problems, right? Then you have systematic discrimination, right? Um, but the tendency to form in-groups and out-groups is natural. In itself, it's not necessarily a problem. And what happens with the in-groups and out-groups is that we, um, we have more ease with the in-group. We know the rules of the in-group. We know people with the in-group. We know how they are, we think. We, we uh, have a certain level of comfort that we don't have with the out-group. And you can think of this, you know, in terms... And this, again, is true in, often in terms of ethnicity, could be true in terms of class. We know what the, the rules of behavior are. We're familiar. We have a sense of what we think is normal with the in-group. Um, we tend, with people who are in our in-group, to be generous and to give people slack. We tend to have more empathy with people in the in-group. Uh, we tend, we are more willing to make sacrifices without getting anything in return. We generally trust people in the in-group more. Uh, and we often seek people out, you know. Uh, there's, there's a, you, do you know the phrase gaydar? You know, which is that uh, people who are gay tend to have a radar, they think, for other people who are gay. And I've noticed this, you know, being of Jewish background, I've noticed that um, 
at times at gatherings. I noticed this most distinctly when I would go to the meetings of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which were typically in Asia. And um, there'd be kind of a, about maybe about half or two-thirds people from Asian countries and about half people from US, Europe, Canada, Australia, and so forth. And it was, it was a little bit uncanny, but all of the Jewish people, often the first evening, would just kind of have a meal together <laughs> without any plan, <laughs> right? It, was just, it just happened, right? And it was very, it was very interesting. I, and how many of you have noticed something like that in some social settings? You know, it's interesting. And there, there's a, there's, so this is the nature of the in-group. Again, by itself, there's a certain innocence to it. It's just the way it works. Now, again, um, when this gets connected with power, there are all sorts of issues. Okay. Now, what is the case with the out-group? We generally don't know the rules of the out-group. We don't know how they talk. We don't know how they behave. We don't know what's normal. We tend to see what the outgroup is doing as uh, often bad, not normal, and so forth. Um, I once uh, <clears throat> worked with a teacher. Um, this was when I was in graduate school, who tried to answer that question: Are there any cross-cultural? Um, truths. Are there any uh, cross-cultural general patterns which are there across all cultures? You know? And aside from being born and dying, the only one that he found was that the, what, what is a truth that goes across all cultures is we think we're doing it right and we're good and others are not good and they're not doing it right. That went across all cultures. <laughs> That was the only cross-cultural generalization one could make, which is, you know, corresponds to this notion of in-groups and out-groups, that this is, is very, very basic, right? And, and so, we, you know, with people in the out-group, we uh, tend, to, with people in the out-group, to see them as representatives of the group, not as individuals. Whereas people in the in-group, we tend to see as individuals and not members of the in-group, right? So this makes some sense of what's happening with police, right? Makes some sense. Uh, this, and these are the, I want to have you look at these issues in the next week. See what you find. We have, we have to have a no-shame, no-blame attitude. One uh, teacher, Ruth King, has anyone studied with Ruth? Ruth is, lives in Charlotte, she's an African-American teacher in Buddhist tradition who uh, does trainings called Mindful of Race. At all of those trainings, she says, everyone in this training gets 10 get-out-of-jail-free cards, <laughs> which means you have 10 cards that let you totally mess up, <laughs> okay? Totally do something incredibly embar embarrassing and unskillful. So that has to be our philosophy, right? You know, um, no shame, no blame. I may, and I'll, I'll probably next week have to lead with examples of that, too. Okay, so, uh, and there's, with the members of the out-group, there's an unconscious desire not to engage with them. You know, in terms of ethnicity, it's very common. One doesn't look people in the out-group in the eye. This has been shown by research. So you see, all of this is in play, right? 
All of this is in play. All of this is happening on an unconscious level. So that, that can lead to overwhelm, can't it? You know, this is all happening. I'm going to suggest that this is all workable and transformable. Now, I'll just make the one connection with power, and then we'll, I think we'll open things up. What this uh, tendency, very natural tendency to form in-groups and out-groups does when it's connected with power, which is that all the social hierarchies that I mentioned earlier, there's power on one side and a lack of power, or relative lack of power on the other, right? Race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth, right? Religion. There, we have a sense of which group is socially dominant, right, in all of those areas. Again, some of it's changing. Now, what's going to manifest is that they're going to be, the judgmental mind is basically going to be there from members of the in-group towards members of the out-group. Even if, you know, and it's going to manifest both more extremely and also at the level of uh, uh, what's called implicit bias, which is not typically conscious. So a few examples. And then this, was, this is a definition of implicit bias. You could see how there are all sorts of tendencies for members of the in-group to be judgmental of members of the out-group in all sorts of ways. Does that make some sense? And again, this is again this is typically. I mean, it may not be there with you know, God. That person is not a stamp collector, <laughs> because the issue is power, right? When you when you when it's not connected with power, like it, we, it's absurd to think that I'm going to really judge members, uh, people who don't collect stamps harshly, right? I might say, oh, they're missing some of the great joys in life, <laughs> but but uh, I wouldn't necessarily judge them when it's connected with power. The, the judgmental mind is going to tend to be there. Definition of implicit bias. Mental associations that are so well established as to operate without awareness, without intention, and without control. Even if you have an aspiration to be just, you're going to have implicit bias. That's sobering, isn't it? Even if you're deeply committed to equality, you're going to have implicit bias working. You know? but it's, you can work through it. Um, and what people have found is that even if you have views that are counter to your implicit bias, generally implicit bias guides behavior rather than your conscious views. So some examples. Um, and the other point is that members who, uh, people who are in the out-groups tend to internalize the messages of the in-group. So women internalize the message, I am less than. African Americans internalize the message, I am less than. People who are uh, gay or lesbian internalize the message, I am less than. Partly that depends on when, when one was born, you know, because things are changing with that. But there's internalized. So what you find is the internalized self-judgment is there among members of the out-group, which is as in the example with the dolls, right? It would make sense, right? Again, even if people are deliberately trying to counter that, the judgments are internalized. So some of the, some of the studies that have really shown how this works, uh, have been, uh, there were studies of uh, resumes sent to employers 
uh, where there were mock resumes where they um, had the qualifications of members of one group exactly like those of the other group. The qualifications were completely the same, except that members of one group, one study was done in Canada, had English-sounding names like uh, Greg Johnson or Emily Brown. And then the other names were uh, members, one study with members, either uh, Asian Indian, Chinese, or Pakistani. And they, they had names like Dong Lu, Fatima Sheikh, and so forth. And uh, they received, uh, let's see, 40% uh, fewer uh, requests for interviews. Qualifications completely the same. Did a very similar study in the US with white sounding and black sounding names. The black sounding names received, or the, the, the white names received 50% 50 50 more requests to be interviewed. Qualifications completely the same. It's been very well shown that, for example, medical treatment of black people uh, for the same conditions is inferior. Pretty shocking, right? It's pretty well established. A lot of studies on this. They show that uh, 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 black men and white men, same age and so forth, with heart conditions, the black men will get inferior treatment, often won't get the, the right treatment, right? You have all sorts of things. They also have done studies of police officers, and they show that partly because of this implicit bias, uh, police officers are much more you know, likely to uh, think that a soda can or a camera held by a black person is a gun than with white people. And this goes for black officers as well. It's internalized. You get a sense of how this manifests? So get a sense of how this is the background for a lot of what's happening. Get a sense of it's not a matter of, you know, a few police reforms here and there. We're talking about a deep issue. Now again, maybe to, to finish, um, I think we have we have a commitment to look deeply here. Even if you didn't start this, even if you came to meditation just hoping to relax a little bit, we hope that we've hooked you with deep intentions, right? To really look into the deep nature of our being. What causes suffering? What, ca what leads to freedom? We have that commitment to look deeply into these social issues is big. To look into this conditioning is a lot. I think that, and so I want to invite for the next week, you know, some first steps here. Try to be mindful of what occurs in your own mind, in your own behavior, with people who are in in-groups and out-groups. Maybe deliberately watch the news with mindfulness. I've often wanted to do that on retreats. Okay, we've, done, we've had eight hours of training. Let's watch the news for half an hour with mindfulness. <laughs> and, it's advanced practice, right? Um, but try to bring mindfulness. Study what's there in your own mind. Look at, particularly look at where there is um, overt or implicit bias. Study it. Bring compassion to yourself. Do, I would say do also practicing with empathy and compassion is really crucial here. Because this, this, this means more or less we're all in the same soup together. So I would urge you to do a heart practice in the next week as well, regularly. This is, this, is, uh, this is strong, right? This is deep. And yet I think if we're committed to awakening, doesn't it seem like working through this is part of awakening? 
And again, we can, uh, when we have the resources of understanding social conditioning with the resources of inner practice, I think we have the kind of tools that are sufficient to really bring about transformation. And so, first step, just take a look, see what's there, investigate, you know, investigate, notice what's there in your mind, maybe try to be in, maybe read the newspapers some about these events with the kind of eyes that we've been supporting here. How's that sound? Okay. How many would like to do that for the next week and then come back? Okay, it'd be great. I took a little more time than I wanted, but let me, let me, we're at, at close to time. Let me see if there are maybe one or two or three questions just to, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief with these. Yeah, let's take, use the microphone. We have one here and then one, and Maureen on the side. Well, following on your suggestion, I, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't have the equanimity right now to, to I don't read the newspaper or watch the news, and I, yeah. it's, it's so incredibly biased and negative. I, I, yeah. I don't think, I, I hope you don't implement that at the next retreat I'm on with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in all of this, in all of this, I think there's really an important place to ask, what am I ready for? Or what's appropriate given how my mind is? I think we never force practices. Sure. We never force TV on anyone at no, retreat. I'm teasing you. <laughs> Tease, teasing you, but that just felt like, It's whoa. never happened. No one ever has been forced to watch TV on a retreat, ever. <laughs> I think Maureen is in the corner. We want to get uh, to her at some point. Um, but yeah, I think uh, for all of this, See where you're drawn. You know, I, I like that uh, quotation. I think this has to really guide us. See where you're really drawn in your own life, because that's going to be where the energy. See where the energy is here. And I, you know, I, I remember Joanna Macy. Maybe two two thoughts here. Joanna Macy has a model of social transformation, which is very good. She said there's three kinds of transformation. One is preventing further negative things from happening. The second is shifting the institutions. And the third is changing consciousness. And all three are necessary. And some of us are more drawn to one or the other. What's important is to see that they're all necessary. But I may be more drawn to let me help shift consciousness. Or let me work to make this better in my own children's school. Or in my own community. You know, so all three are necessary. That takes the pressure. We don't have to do everything. And the other comment, which is really, really great, is from Howard Thurman, African-American minister, set up the first interracial congregation in the Bay Area in San Francisco, I think in the 40s. And he was asked near the end of his life, uh, uh, what should I do? He was an activist, and you might think he would say, well, we really need people with this cause or that cause. But he said this very remarkable uh, thing. He said... You know, a lifetime time activist, he said, don't ask what the world needs, but rather ask, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right? Isn't that remarkable? So see what makes you come alive in this area. And hopefully something does, but really go and not, not to force anything. Yeah, thanks. Maureen? When- one of the things this week that I've been thinking about with the police, or I came out of hospital work for 40 yeah. years, is now there's a big push for protocols. Yeah. So people don't think for themselves sometimes. Yeah. You know, in your heart, what you're coming yeah. is from your heart and mindfulness. Yeah. But 
it's almost like if you don't follow protocols, you lose your job. Yeah. So there's a big conflict now on, you know, I think within the minds of people, like even in some of these shootings, yeah. you know, and that's, that's a whole thing with our society. That's right. There, there are more superficial and, and deeper ways of looking into all this and working with it, you know, and there are often, you know, tendencies to do something more superficial. And we want to, we want to go deeply and have that option and set that for people. Yeah. Maybe two more and then we'll, then we'll finish up. Well, in the in and out group idea, um, I specialize in working with former members of cults or high demand groups. Right. And I have been involved in one as a young adult. And so I have been thinking a lot about, um, you know, in the in group, there is corruption often. Yeah. And, so my orientation from my history and my work is that I try to always be one step out of the in-group. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes because it, it is being more alone. Um, but sometimes I think, oh, wouldn't it be nice just to be riding the boat on the, with the in-group? But I can't always do it because I, I have a fear if, if I'm too much in the in-group, then uh, I'm going to lose something of myself and my differentiation. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of great points. And I think there was, wasn't there a song, I don't know, from the 60s or 70s, I'm in with the in-group. But what also came to mind, one of the strategies for working in this area and any of the in-group, out-group divides is to have friends who are in the out-group related to your in-group have friends, develop empathy, see them as individuals, go against the conditioning, right? That, that's also a major way that transformation occurs. Very simple, right? Make an active effort to connect with people who are in the outgroup, right? So last one, yeah. Yeah, with, with these um, implicit biases, especially connected to social conditioning, yeah. they almost seem unlike the other biases you've talked about. Yeah completely wrong and therefore no room for discernment. Yeah. Like, perhaps for political correctness reasons, it's the tendency is to see them as just completely biased and completely wrong and not to look for what might be discerning about them. Yeah, it's a great great question. Um, I think it's a great question to ask. You know, I I didn't talk about um, some of the other, some of the forms that uh, some of the other forms that judgments take in terms of social conditioning. We could also talk about what we might call cultural myths, cultural stereotypes. Uh, <clears throat> you know, one cultural myth is, uh, in our society, is um, you can make it. Again, I'm thinking of songs. There was a old reggae song, you can make it if you really try. Right? Um, <clears throat> But it's kind of a, one of the cultural myths is um, uh, people who work hard can make it, right? And that's actually believed by also people in outgroup, even though there are barriers against them. Uh, 50% of African Americans believe that <clears throat> everyone has an equal chance, right? That, that's interesting, isn't it? And a very large percentage of white people believe that. Some of the researchers in, in implicit bias said the greatest problem is actually not oppression. 
but it's actually the um, what the the favorable treatment given to other members of the in-group. That's a greater problem than, you know, that's, that's a form of institutional discrimination, you know, which, you know, that, that actual, you know, like in, in those um, studies related to the job applications, right? That the favorable treatment given to people in the in-group is actually a more serious problem than oppression. It's a pretty strong statement. That's some people's views. <clears throat> and so, there is some discernment in that cultural view. You can make it if you really try. It's a mix, isn't it? It's a mix of seeing something and some not seeing something, right? Or uh, a lot of cultural stereotypes have some discernment to them. You know, you might say, um, you know, related to uh, African-American men. Well, for different reasons, more African men are arrested for certain kinds of crimes. There are multiple causes of that. And some people would just go to a, you know, a cultural stereotype of a simplistic nature. But um, there's some, there can be some discernment there of noticing a pattern. Whether you, you know, whether you go to the conclusion is another matter. Does that make some sense? So in some of these, they're just extreme, negative, wrong maybe. But in some of them, the ones that hook us, there's some discernment. You know, if you, if you study the, you know, maybe the, this is my view, if you study the uh, people who are followers of Mr. Trump, you'll probably find a, a mix. A lot of them, there's probably a mix of discernment and reactivity. So exactly like the model that I gave of what being judgmental is. And they don't see the reactivity, they just see what they think is true, which is that my economic position is not as good as it used to be. That's true. Right? There's truth there. And they attribute it. That's what scapegoating is about. There's, a, there's some discernment plus uh, reactivity. Right? So it's interesting. So we want to, that's something else to look at. Where are the judgments uh, really just off and where, where do they involve reactivity? Right? Okay. Um, thanks for bearing with me. Thanks for being with us. I really look forward. You have to remember your intention every morning to do this or it'll get forgotten. Um, so thank you so much for your uh, kind attention, for uh, being really being together as we explore this. I think we're doing this. We can see how we're really doing this for ourselves, but also very much for others. I do believe that the resources which we carry are invaluable. They're part of the mix, and we have to develop them more and then offer them for the benefit of all beings. So maybe just uh, take a moment to see uh, what your intention is coming out of this morning. And then we, we end by remembering that we do this very much for ourselves, but also very much for others. And may the benefits of our of our practice, be there for ourselves, be there for others, ultimately for all beings, without exception, remembering that we are part of all beings. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.